0: God bless you, brothers. It's um, it's my my privilege. It is my joy to come here before you this evening once again to share the word of God with you. It is always an encouraging thing to come here and see all your faces, despite the obvious cold that we're experiencing. But we're gonna warm ourselves in the word of God. Amen. And as um, I'm sure you guys have been uh, well aware, we've been studying the book of Hebrews together. Uh, it's been a wonderful book, uh, a book full of, full of encouragement. Um, and and uh, just as we reflect upon the goodness of Christ and, and the glory of our Lord Jesus, we, we've had the opportunity to to rejoice in what uh, God has given us in, in and through this wonderful epistle, this wonderful letter. So if you would kindly join me in opening up our Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 6, and as you find it, as always, if you could stand up and give reverence to the Word of God, we're reading Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9, and we'll be, we'll be finishing off with verse 12, with the help of God. Amen. Praise God. The Word of God says this, uh, Hebrews 6 verse 9. It says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray. Father, we come before you at this moment, O God, in need of you, O God, in desperate need of you to speak this evening, Lord, I leave, Lord God, myself in your hands and your people in your hands, O God, asking, Lord God, that you would bless us, Lord, through the truth that is declared in this portion that we've read. Lord, I ask that you would be merciful, Lord God, in showing us your word, Lord. In speaking to our lives, Lord God, in bringing encouragement. And I pray, Father God, that you would be speaking, Lord God, through this message, Lord God. That you would be the one, Lord God, empowering it, Lord. Father, I humble myself before you in desperate need of you, O God. Let it be you, Lord, blessing your people. Let it not be a stirring of emotion, Lord, but, Father, a convincing of the Spirit. Lord, I pray these things, oh God, in Jesus' name, amen and amen. You may be seated. So as you guys know, we've been going through the book of Hebrews with me for quite some time now. Um, and last time we, t- we were together, uh, essentially what we're doing is just picking up right from where we left off last time. And last time we were together, we were dealing with a relatively complex portion, a difficult portion um, of Scripture in which uh, what we came across was the implication of possibly um, being impossible, it being impossible to restore some who had participated in the faith in some degree or another, in some capacity or another, but had stepped away from the faith. It was there that, that the, the scriptures began to express itself in this impossibility. And the word there that was used there was that, that it was impossible to re- return them or restore them to repentance. So we were dealing with this issue of was there no hope in in bringing them about, those who have left the church or were considering abandoning the faith altogether? Was there no hope in in, in the future for them to to be brought back into faith? And this was that pressing question that we meditated on together. Uh, One that was quite difficult, as I said, and our first step was really to understand whether or not this word there, impossible, was indeed impossible, and the things that we did was we, we compared it with the, the, the way that the author used this word throughout the rest of his letter. We compared it with his usage in, in other passages of this same book. And what we concluded was that that word were impossible, indeed meant impossible. But when we came to verse 6, however, we, we came to this very important change of tense in the way that the writer had been writing. Because up until this point, the writer had, had, uh, had been writing in this indefinite way, but now he, he changes this, the tense from past into continuous. And so saying that, so that while they are continually or in that continual state of crucifying the Son of God, that while they are in that continuous state that there would be no forgiveness granted to them. That while they are hardening their hearts, it, it, it's going to be impossible while they're in that state to be reestablished into the faith. And that means that those who had come and gone from the church, it, it gives us a hope and a, a reminder that God is merciful. And that while we still have breath in our lungs, God is still merciful. That there is still a hope for those whom we have seen gone or have abandoned the faith. But something that stood out as well from this was a, a second implication, and this is what, what the author kind of dwells into in the portion that we've read a little bit more. That, that is that this obvious, um, I guess, truth that, that we as believers who have been in the faith for some time may recognize this. And that is that not everyone who comes to church are believers, are genuine believers. That's the reality that not everyone who walks through the doors are, are, are actual genuine believers in Christ. Just because they come here and, and attend does not mean that they are true believers. And the author e- expressed this in, in, in uh, various ways, saying that, that one could come here and, and be enlightened, by the word one could taste the heavenly gifts and and partake in these things and and share in the holy spirit he said that we could taste the goodness of god's word we can be blessed with his word we could even witnessed the power of the ages to come. And and when we were together, we we went through those things together. We won't go into them. But he he says that these things, you could could see anyone come and and participate in that. And that was what was going on in in the church that he's addressing at this time. That not everyone who comes here is truly a believer. I think it's something for us to consider that Not everyone who walks through our doors, who maybe raises their hands, who who looks the part and and speaks the part or dresses the part is actually one who is consistently or genuinely a believer. It's something that should break our hearts. It's something that should concern us as as a church. It, It is something that we should be aware of and take action. And there it is, and this is the issue that this church was facing. I guess the question would be, well then what is the difference between, if, if these guys who step through the doors can experience, you know, the Spirit can experience the Word or can be blessed by the Word, what separates the genuine believer from those counterfeits, those who just come just to, to sit down? What makes the difference between, what's the difference between a genuine believer and one who just confesses to be or, or just wants to be in a social club, as it were? The writer says that those who have salvation, it, 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 that salvation that they are given, it is accompanied by better things. By better things. And that is tonight's message and that's what I want to meditate on. It is these better things. What are these better things that accompany the salvation of the believer? What are these better things that you and I must have as believers, as genuine believers, those who profess to be Christians? What are these better things that the author is speaking of in this this letter? To that, let's turn to to the Word. Read with me once again verse 9. The Word of God says this though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Praise God. Up until this moment, the writer had been dealing with those who aren't genuine. Beginning from chapter 5 11 onwards to about uh, chapter 6 verse 8, he's been dealing with those, those people who come and congregate and, and put up a front and pretend to be a Christian who just come here and sit um, and warm up seats, and that's all that they do. He's been addressing them, and he's been addressing them with a firm hand. He's been strict on them. He would, he would describe them, if you recall, as, as being lazy, as dull of hearing. He's been speaking to them with, with a firm hand, being trying his, his best to awaken them. Awaken from your slumber. It is serious. This salvation that we're speaking of, it is not something light. And so we see that here in this portion, the, the tone changes. The way he speaks is quite different and, and rightly so. It is like a a, a breath of fresh air because up until now, like I said, it's been really heavy. But he says here, yet in your case. And so he's making a distinction here. He's now addressing the believer. He's now addressing those who are genuine believers in the faith. There's this definite shift that takes place here. And it begins uh, as he begins to address the believer in this section. Not those who are swaying in between back and forth and he speaks to them here in such a loving way he calls them beloved in the greek there it's agapatos beloved beloved and this is the first and only time that the author actually uses this phrase so it's a special one it is very special to begin with because the word there agapetos from which we get the word agape that word love that selfless love this is the word that describes the believer this is the term that he uses to describe the believer and he it, it, for me it's one of my personal favorites to refer to the church as the beloved the beloved it is such a wonderful term because it is not expressing only the author's love for the, for the brothers, for the church. But it expresses the love of God for the church. It expresses the love of the Father for His children. He's acknowledging that the church is beloved of God. That is who the church is. Brothers, do you realize that you are beloved of God? That God Almighty loves you. It is such a joy and a privilege to know that the God Almighty who created the heavens and the earth has this love for you. We as believers are beloved of God. We are ever embraced in that love from that holy God that we serve. The only true God. And I'm amazed at the way that the the author expresses his love. Not just towards the believer in these sweet words, but there's this dichotomy of expression of his love. You know, the way he expresses himself to the believer, it's wonderful. The way he expresses himself to the church is in these sweet, gentle words. And I believe that this is really what we as a church should be speaking of each other. Amen? That we as believers should address each other in those sweet Loving words, my beloved brother, my beloved sister. Amen? Or am I not speaking to the church? We love each other because Christ loved us. That's what we were singing this evening. Because you loved me, I am able to love and that is why we are the beloved And so we address each other. This is the language of a true believer. Someone who genuinely loves Christ will automatically love as Christ loves. And Christ loves his church. Christ loves his church. So we will love as Christ loves. We will love the church. Amen. He's gentle and sweet with the way he speaks to his brother's. It treats them with such gentleness. Brothers, do you speak to your brothers in that same way? You speak and address to them as my beloved brother with gentleness and love in your prayers. But it's not surprising that the the writer, the epistle, Uh, the writer of this epistle, this letter speaks in this way. But what comes to as a shock or may come as a shock is is the way he expresses his love for those who are falling away. Those who are are going against uh, the faith, who are thinking of departing, who are wanting to go back to the old life. The way he calls them or the way he refers to them, many would be uh, consider it rude. He calls them dull of hearing. That's lazy. Borderline, almost calling them idiots. What are you guys doing? And that's because of this, the 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 reality of what he's dealing with here. The the what is at stake here is not something light. It is eternity, and that's why he's stressing it. Do you not see the foolishness of you turning away from Christ? And that's we. As believers ought to do as well with those whom we see, we plead with them. I mean, obviously, we're not going to be calling them idiots, those who are in the world. We let Scripture do that. A fool says in his heart, there is no God. But that is what we do. We, we, we share the truth because the truth is what sets us free. Amen. That is the way we love. And even if they call us bigots or idiots or fools or religious or whatever it is, it doesn't matter. That's the way we express the love that we have in Christ by sharing the truth with others. That's what we do as Christians. And that's what we see him do with those who are considering leaving the church. Like fools, wake up. This is a matter of life and death. You see how he loves But let us return to the issue at hand. The author says that those who had received salvation, those who were genuine believers, those who are truly saved, you are able to determine whether or not you are genuinely saved. Because that would have been the pressing issue. That would have been the question on everyone's mind. Because if everyone can partake of these things, if everyone can partake of the Spirit, if everyone can partake of the Word of God and see these powers being manifested, then what is it that separates the true believer from those who just participate in these things? How are we going to determine which one is genuinely a Christian and who is pretending to be one? What is that? How are we going to be able to make heads from tails? That's the question that would have popped up to their heads. Is that how do we determine the genuine from the fake? And so we see here in this portion, the first thing here that we we see uh, is dealing with that issue. How can we know for certain those things that accompany uh, or those who have genuine salvation? And he says this, he says that better things accompany them. Better things accompany them. Now this comparison is not made with salvation. It's not saying that better things than salvation accompany them. The comparison is better things accompany them, those who have salvation. You see those better things in them. They practice those better things. There are better things that are manifested in the genuine believer. And you can see them. And we're going to see what those are. What are these things that are better? What are these superior things? To that, let's turn to verse 10. The Word of God says this. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your walk and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So pressing this question again, this this wonderful question that we're attempting to answer. How do I know that I am one of those who who have received that seed in my heart and that it's genuinely fallen in good soil so as to produce fruit from it? How do I know, in other words, how do I know that I'm one of those genuinely saved, those who are genuine Christians? What sets me apart? What are these better things that I should be looking forward to or should be accompanying my salvation? Are you ready for it? What should accompany my salvation? Well, he gives us five things, but to the first one, are you ready? What accompanies, what are these better things that accompany your salvation? If I had a drummer here, I'd ask for a drum roll. The first sign of genuine conversion, are you ready? Is to work. To work. Work accompanies your salvation. Work accompanies your salvation. And so at this moment, I would love to have heard all those brothers who said, yes, I'm beloved of God. Say yes, amen to that as well. That we are saved and we are saved to work. Glory to God, amen. No one really wants to work. This is the first thing. This is what accompanies our salvation. He's talking about those who are genuine. Don't worry, those who are genuine believers. He says, I thank you because this is already in your practice that you walk and love. And that's the second thing. But walk. he says that you work. Here is where you stop and say, wait a minute. Are you saying that you, you know, you're going to work or you're suggesting that salvation is of works? No, I'm not suggesting anything that scripture isn't suggested already to you. I'm not saying that you work in order to, salve- to, to, in order to be saved. No, I'm saying that that is the fruit of your salvation, is that you work, that you are put to work. I mean, we all know James, right? We all know that faith without works is what? It's dead. If you're alive in the Lord, you will work. You will serve because of all that emotion that we had when we were worshiping God here at that moment, when we were considering and reflecting upon the cross, when we were thinking about the blood that was poured out for you. That will motivate you to work, to serve. We are saved and we have been brought to life to serve. And to work, we are not brought to life. We're not dead in our transgression, brought to life just so that we can sleep again. No, we were dead in our transgression, brought to life by Christ so that we can walk, so that we can serve, so that we can go and make war against the enemy. It is an active life. We as believers, this is the mark that, that defines a genuine believers that you are put to work, you work. There's this eagerness to serve. Now, let's unpack this a little bit more because it's not just straightforward as that, as, I, as I described it to you. It is far more precious. It is wonderful to the believer. And here is what the writer ties it together with the second element, and that is that we love. Agape, love. For indeed they are united and inseparable. Our work and our love, they are united. They have to be. We do it because we love. We do it because we love God and we love the brother. That is what the law is summed up in. Love God, love your neighbor. There is a love that manifests itself in work and it is received or perceived by God. And that is what is described here in the Greek for us in this verse. This is what the author is describing to us. The action of God, he sees that work. He sees that love demonstration. In this passive observance, he, he receives that of the believer, that love, that, that love offering, that, that work. And note with me that, that the object to which we lift up this work is to God. Yes, we, we, we serve each other, but it is done unto God. The author says that the, the word they work, Aragon and agape, love is demonstrated or displayed for his name. That is, that, that is our motive to love. It is done for the name of God. When we do these loving acts for one another, the person that we have in mind is not the brother, it is God. It's God who we see. We, we, we think upon His goodness, and we think upon His love, and that drives us to work. Our work is always driven by the motive of love for the God that we serve For the God who has made us alive, to him be the glory and honor. It is God who does that. And may I suggest to you, in passing, that if this is one of the things that as we come to know God more, and we've we've received this salvation, that as we come and draw closer to God, our work... Becomes more. Not in the sense of we take more responsibility, but in the sense that it it intensifies. We do it with greater humility. As we progress in our faith, we do it with more gentleness for the believer. With more patience. Because we've come to know God to be that. Our work increases. It doesn't decrease. It increases as we come to know God. And it must be made clear that our love and work that is recognized by God is, is not our attendance. That's not what we do. You don't get brownie points because you've come to church this evening. Don't, don't pat yourself on the back because you came to church. Don't, don't, don't think that that's the work that is described here. It's not, it's not just coming to church or reading your Bible prayer. These things benefit you. They benefit you. It is for your own well-being. The work that is described here is this work, this selfless love, where you love and serve your brother and sister. That's the work that is being described here. Know with me that the author says that God is not unjust to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name. And how does this love work out? How is this manifested? In serving the saints. This is how you show that love in the servants, in your service to the saints. I'm I'm preaching to the church, amen? We love each other. We serve each other. Because he has shown us that. The master humbled himself, lowered himself, became a servant for us. Who are we? That he did that for us. Brothers, there's no such thing as a Christian who does not serve the church, let alone a Christian who does not attend a church either. I mean, we've all heard that saying that I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. That's a lie. That's a lie. I don't have to. As long as I have a relationship with God. You you cannot have a relationship with God and hate the, the bride of God. You can't have that. You can't be one of those who, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus, I believe to his teachings, and yet never once know one member of the church or love them. That's no argument, no. That doesn't make you a Christian. A lot of people say that. That doesn't make you a Christian if you go to church. Yeah, that's true, that's true. But you're called to serve, and that's how you show your love. God, serving your brothers and sisters, your love for God is matched by your desire to serve His church. Your love for God is matched by your desire to serve to serve His church. An absence of the latter is therefore an absence of the former. If you say love God, you will love your church too. Let's read verse eleven. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. We come across now to the, to the rest of these better things that accompany us. We have seen that, that what accompanies our salvation, those who are genuine, is work, which we all screamed out, amen, and praised God. Yes, we get to serve the Lord, amen. We get to praise God together. We get to serve each other. And the other one is that we love, we we show that love through that service for the glory of God. That is what separates us. That is those better things that accompany our salvation. And here we have another thing. here, an, An added element to our service and that is eagerness or earnestness. And the other is assurance. These are the two things that we get here in these verses. In this verse, let's take one at a time. Eagerness. Eagerness is something that relates to the nature of our work and service. And in the Greek, it refers to speed, diligence, being ready, that eagerness, that drive. And the way I imagine it is, as if you've ever been in a race, You, I mean, we've all seen the Olympics. When they're ready to do that 100 sprint, they're in that position waiting for the gun to go off. That position... Should characterize all Christians where we are all ready at the drop when there is a need in our brother. We are ready to jump out and serve that brother. That is the attitude of a Christian. That eagerness where I'm ready and waiting for the Lord to call me and say, Oh God, I'm ready. You know, like all the prophets, here I am, Lord, send I. I'm ready. These are the better things that accompany the church. This posture of being ready, I'm eager. Who can I pray for? Who can I love? Who can I bless in my my congregation? How can I serve? How uh, How can I be of useful to my brothers and sisters? How can I love them? Why? Because I just love God so much. It's not even about the person that you're serving. It is about God. Because at the end of the day, if you're doing it accordingly to the way they receive your love, you're doing it for the wrong motives. We are all broken. We are all fallen. We are all all, all just terrible people. Let's be honest. We get upset at the slightest things. But that isn't the motive as to why we love each other. The motive is always God because he loved me first. Therefore, there's this eagerness. I'm I'm ready. I'm ready to respond. God just send me wherever the need is. I want to be there. This is what these brothers were expressing and I want to bring this, I've been been bringing this into our context, but I think it might hold greater uh, impact for our lives if we put it back into their context. Do you know what was going on at this time? I've said this numerous times. They were facing persecution. Brothers and sisters were being, at the worst, being killed off because they confessed Jesus to be Lord. At the very minimum, they were beaten up or put in prison. And so this is the context in which this finds itself, in this instruction. What this tells us is this this church was seeing brothers and sisters going through some trials, to say the least, where they were facing persecution, beaten; they were being beaten up, they were put in prison because they believed in the Lord. And so what did these brothers do? They would visit them in prison, knowing full well that if they went and stepped in, and worshipped with them, and prayed with them, that they would make themselves identified as a Christian as well. And they will face that same punishment. They too would face the beat-ups. They too would be imprisoned alongside them. But it did not matter to them. This is that type of love. When you see your brother struggling... In pain for the cause of Christ, and you are so in love with the Lord that you can't bear to see your brother go through that. You want to go and encourage them, and pray with them, and sing songs with them to lift them up, even at the cost of you putting your own life at risk as well. What a testimony these brothers have! The love that they have. Just remember when I was a kid and. Forgive me, parents, for sharing this, but sometimes my brother would get in trouble and he would, well, he was, he was definitely worthy of getting a belting, but despite that, in my own flesh, to see my brother get beat up, I wanted to take his place and say, no, no, smack me, it was me. That's that type of love that we have for one another when we see each other in pain for the glory of Christ. We're like, no, I'm going to go over there even if it exposes me. If your brother is getting ridiculed, teased because of his faith, you step up and you say, I believe to. Repent. Even if they call you a bigot, an idiot, a fool, whatever form of persecution we may face. This is that type of love. These brothers show that love to each other. Assurance is the other thing here we have assurance is connected to that that race that we have and there's two things that I want to share with you and it is this that endurance is another key here that identifies a a genuine believer it's this endurance that you're going to go to the end why because of the assurance that you have in God you will endure you will go on you will keep on marching forward It is is God who carries us. Our assurance of our salvation is secured and dependent upon God and God alone. It is not dependent upon you. It is all of God. He is the one that carries us. He is the one that saves us. He is the one that calls us. He is the one that changes us. He is the one that redeems us. It is all of God. He is the one that keeps us. It is He who will carry us through the journey we call life. It is not of man's will or strength. It is not dependent upon our might, but on the mighty hand of God that redeems, that carries you. This is the assurance. These are the better things that we as a church have. We have assurance of our faith, of our salvation. And I want to connect this with verse 10 that, in that we see here that everything that we do, we do it for the name of God. It is for His name. You know, for his name's sake, you know, when we make oaths, when we make promises, when we were, you know, back in the day before we were Christians, we would make oaths, we would swear on greater things than ourselves. We're like, I swear on, you know, whoever, on the, my father's grave. You hear people still say that. I swear on the lives of my children. They express themselves in this. But when we come across, the, the when God comes and he gives us a promise, there's nothing greater than than what God can can swear against then his own name or his own self. He swears it upon his own name. And who is his name? What is his name? We know him. It's, it's Yahweh. It is I am who I am. I'll be who I'll be. Our assurance is dependent upon the great I am that he will be who he says he will be. He is who he is. He is reliable, dependable. He is the faithful one. Even when we are not, he remains faithful. Our salvation, our assurance is dependent upon him, upon his name. It is for his glory. It is for his reputation. It's not ours. So what do I make of all of this? Only this. We have been contemplating on better things for our salvation. And we see that assurance is one of those better things. Can we know with certainty that we have salvation in this lifetime? The scripture encourages it. Yes. You you can be assured because it's not dependent upon your strength. It's dependent upon him. We can be sure of our salvation. We can find assurance. Certainly we can. Because it's not dependent upon us. And I think of it like the story of Noah. I'm I'm sure we're all familiar with the story of Noah. Where, you know, God tells Noah to build an ark and he does. And and they they, they all go in him and his whole family and all the animals. And I imagine in those 40 days where it was raining and the waves were crashing against the, the ark. I imagine that Noah and his family would have stumbled. It would have tripped. They would have fallen in those 40 days without a doubt. They would have stumbled across their own feet and, and maybe fell down. But never once did they fall out of that ark. Brothers, it's the same with you and I. We may stumble and fall in this life, but we will never fall out from that salvation that God has given us. In that ark that is secured, that is Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer. He is that ark. And we will never fall out from that ark. That is the assurance that we have. These are the better things that accompany us. And let's read our final verse. And with this we'll finish. Verse 12 says this, So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those through faith and patience. Inherit the promises. Brothers, this could serve as maybe the fifth better thing that accompany the believers the first thing that i want to point out to you is this word sluggish the word sluggish there points us back to chapter 5 verse 11 when he's addressing those who are in one day and out another when they're thinking about leaving church or sometimes they're complaining about something those people that just don't seem to be firm he addresses them he says don't be foolish yeah don't be dull of hearing He uses that same word here. And so he's making a comparison. He says, don't be like that. Don't be like that. Work. Love your brothers. Do it eagerly. Eagerly wanting to serve because you have this assurance in God. That is what comes with your salvation. It is this assurance not in yourself, but in God. There's just one last thing. It says, you have also as believers this array of heroes of faith. Men who you can turn to in Scripture and see how God was faithful in their lives. And you can see the glory of God in their lives because God kept them despite the fact that they fell and trip. I mean, we've been looking at the story of Abraham. He was not a perfect man, as you can see. But God kept him, saved him. We have all these things. These are the better things. These are the the better things that accompany our salvation or church. May we put these things in practice in our lives. May we see that in our church where we are called to, to serve one another. That we eagerly do that with love. That we address each other tenderly. Beloved, I love you, my brother and sister. Because God is so wonderful to me. He knows how terrible I am. How vile I am. And despite that, he still loves me. How can I not love you? I am not greater than my master. We have these better things. And these are the things that separate us from the genuine or from the ingenuine. And it's found in the genuine. Those who are true believers. will love God the church will love as Christ and will have an assurance of their faith in their God the great I am let's bow in prayer father we thank you O God for your word as we reflect oh God upon the assurance of faith as we briefly meditate Lord God on your goodness and kindness Lord God to love us Lord God to lead our lives, Lord God, through that faith, Lord God, that you've given us. You tell us in Ephesians that it is a gift. Faith is a gift that you grant us. And in that, Lord, in that salvation, Lord, comes assurance. Assurance of our salvation. That leads us, Lord, into loving our brothers. Even at the risk of our, of our own lives, Lord God. But it doesn't matter. We do it joyfully. Out of what you have done for us. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for the example here that we've seen. That we got to meditate. Lord, I thank you so much for this evening. And may this word be an encouragement to your church, Lord. A desire, Father, create in us a desire to serve, to work. In love for you and for your glory. We ask this so humbly in the name that is above all names. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.